If you are like me and slightly less educated, you will not know perhaps that in the world of classical music, the term motif is something that describes just a few chords, just a little sound that will be short and memorable and pithy and catchy, and you will find it repeated again and again and again as you go through the music. Perhaps we're meant to associate this little sound with a particular person or a particular theme, or a place, or an idea. And so each time we hear it, that theme, person, place, idea is brought to mind. It brings images and conjures ideas. And the thing is, though, it's not quite the same. Often it expands. It grows, it develops, it builds. The symphony or the story goes on, so we reach this final glorious crescendo at the end often a number of motifs blending together like a number of little streams joining the river which join the sea. And if you just read the last bit, if you just listen to the last bit, actually you can miss where it's all come from. If you just do the famous bit that everyone knows, then you've missed the development and the progression and the flourishing and the maturation that's happened through the piece. You miss their story. And in many ways, the Bible is rather like a piece of classical music. There are, there are ne- numerous themes and motifs that grow and develop and flourish. And we arrive at a man dying on a cross at the end, at the crescendo. But if we just look at him... If we just focus in on him, we may miss what it's all about. We might miss how we've actually got there. How the motifs have matured, how the classical music has progressed. And so for these next few weeks as we think about Easter together, the the plan is to pick a particular motif in the Bible, that of substitution, and to just glance at different places where it arrives as we see different passages, different signposts that point us ahead to the cross. We'll be looking at one passage each week, and we pray it will give us a better grasp of the cross, a better grasp of the crescendo. Our God is a global God, and a global God will make global promises. And so in Genesis 12, where God makes a promise to a man called Abraham and a lady called Sarah, so you will expect, as we read through the Bible, for there to be development, progression. For the family of this elderly couple to indeed bless the nations, to have a truly global impact, we might expect growth, maturity, And so we'll be looking at different purple passages, key passages in the Old Testament over the next four weeks. And we will see something of the broadening and the the development that happens through this theme of substitution. So this week in Genesis 22, we see one animal being substituted for one person, Isaac. Next week in Exodus 12, in the Passover, we will see a substitution of an animal for one family. It's growing. Week after that, Leviticus 14, the Day of Atonement, it's an animal for the nation. And then the week after that, Easter Sunday, Daniel Blanche will be 
helping us see from Isaiah 52 and 53 that it's the true Lamb of God for the nations. It's grown. It's matured. It's flourished. The little streams have flown together into the big river. And so we'll appreciate all the more what's going on at the cross. We'll grasp Easter all the more clearly with thankful hearts. Because the danger is if we just come in cold and look at the cross at the end, we might have a little understanding of what's going on, but not much. And so without the earlier passages of Scripture, we might just be confused. For some, the idea of the Lamb of God dying for the sins of his people is bizarre or frankly abhorrent. Maybe that's you if you're here this morning as a guest or a visitor just looking in on Christian things. You think, well, somebody dying in the place of somebody else in our modern world, we call that a miscarriage of justice. That's not good news, that's barbaric. What's going on? Where has this concept come from? But if we trace it through the Bible and we see where it's come from, then it will help us to grasp what's actually happened. Better still if we can grasp that it is God himself who is the substitute, who takes the place of his people. So this week we're in Genesis 22. Do keep your Bibles open. It will help you and it will help me a lot. A bird's eye view of where we've come from so far. God made a perfect world, Genesis 1 and 2, and yet we walked out on the God of life. And so the world was cursed, broken. War came in, war between nations, war between families, war between people. Genesis 3 is a gloomy and depressing passage. But there is a star in the midst of the passage, something good. One who's going to come from Eve, who will crush God's enemy, who will crush Satan, the serpent. And the story unfolds, but it's not Eve's first son. Then where is this serpent crusher? He's not turned up. We just see the world is damaged. Things going wrong. It's a downward spiral of depravity as we turn the pages through Genesis. Where is this one? Where is this light? And then Genesis 12, it's another glimmer of hope, another star shining in the gloom. God graciously promises to a man called Abraham that from him would come this amazing family who would bless the world, who would bless all the nations. But there's a hitch. There's a hitch because Abraham and his wife Sarah, to say the least, are getting on a bit. And the promise of a baby is there, but there's nothing. And still nothing. And the years pass, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. What is God doing? And finally, Isaac is born. Such good news. We are rejoicing with Abraham and Sarah. God is faithful. He's provided what he said he would. And through him, we take it. God will bless the nations. This is the miracle baby. This is how God is going to do it. And then we get to chapter 22. And it hits us hard. Sometime later, probably about a decade or so later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And God said, take your son whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region in Maria and sacrifice him there. 
one of the best questions for the Christian and one of the hardest questions, I think, for the Christian is how would I cope if this thing were taken away from me? Whatever this thing is for you, this, this person, this item, this dream, this hope, this status, this job, this position, this pay packet, this, this savings that I'm sitting on. It's one of the best questions for us to ask because if, the ever, if ever the answer is, no, I couldn't give that thing up or that person up, then it seems to me it's become unhelpful. It demands our allegiance in an unhelpful way. It's something that is competing with God. Something that essentially has become a God to us. So it's a great question for us to ask. But it's very hard because it's painful. I remember quite vividly talking to a friend of ours back in Birmingham who... I'm explaining to them that first and foremost in my life has to be God. It cannot be my wife Zoe, ultimately. It cannot be the kids. It cannot be the, the job, the house, the car, or any of the good trimmings of life. It cannot be my hopes and my dreams and my desires. Ultimately, God must be first. And they found that very difficult, very hard to accept. But for the Christian, we love God first. Our foundational love has to be him. And so put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Do you want to know what obedience looks like? Here it is. It's the man of faith who obeys. First point. I take it the request in Genesis 22 here rather stretches our view of God, our perception of the kind of things he asks. It was a shocking request. It was a demand that was contrary to human reason. It was contrary to the divine purpose. And yet if this request, this order, if we're honest, terrifies us or appalls us, then we need to ask quite carefully, who was this God that Abraham worshipped? Could he be my God? It was a test in the darkness, and we're to assume that Abraham was as baffled as we might be. But he obeys, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham knew that God had to have the foundational place in his life. And so God tests Abraham, it seems, on one of the most intimate human relationships. And still, off to the mountain he goes. And you get this almost slow, detailed plodding of the narrative, which increases and heightens our tension. We we sense just how much Abraham must have suffered. Plod, plod, plod. Three days of journeying. 
three days of this secret cloud hanging over him. This child whom he and Sarah had been promised and had longed for and had prayed for didn't actually belong to them. Abraham had put his trust not in the promised son whom he had finally received from God, but rather in the one who made the promise in the first place. Not in the promise, but in the one who promised. But verse 5 is still strange. I don't know if you thought that as it was read. He says, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Why is Abraham so sure we will come back? Did he mean we, me and the donkey will come back? Was it deceit going on? Is he not letting the servants in on the plan? Is that it? Fearful that if they know what's going to happen, they won't let him go in the first place? Is it wishful thinking? Maybe hoping God won't go through with it. That he will change his mind, that he's not really being serious. Verse 5 is a strange one. Hebrews 11 is a, uh, in the New Testament, and it's a commentary on the Old in lots of ways. We looked at it last summer, actually, if you were here. Uh, and there it speaks a bit of Abraham in this. Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive back Isaac from the death. So Abraham knows the God of life. And he knows that the God of life can raise the dead. To put it frankly, he's bought life from Sarah and from Abraham, who were well on in years past childbearing age. Life has come there, so why can't he do it again? And if God has promised something, it will come to pass. It will happen. Abraham comes up in in James as well in the New Testament. James chapter 2 and verse 21 to 23, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So in Genesis, Abraham has already been credited with righteousness. He believes God and his promises. He has seen as righteous and yet here we see that belief and that faith lived. Real trust, real faith is active. It shows itself to be alive, alive as it is lived out on Monday morning and on Tuesday. It means that we humbly trust God's ways even when life is hard. We trust him for life. We're to love the God of the promise more than the promises of God. What does that look like for us? I think it's huge. It's asking the kind of question, do I believe that God knows best in all situations? Do do I want to do things his way or do them my way? 
Do I trust him that what he says for me is better if I do it his way, even if in the short term it looks crazy? It makes no sense for Abraham and Isaac to be going to the mountain when God has promised that through Isaac would come the blessing. God is trustworthy, though. He knows how things work out. So think about your home life. Maybe it's your choice of a future spouse. Do you trust God? The kind of things that he says marriage is about? Maybe it's in how you bring up your kids in a way that's different from the rest of the world. They might think you're crazy. Do you trust him? Maybe it's in how many times you you, you are forgiving and you are merciful to others. The world says they've had enough. Ignore them. Don't be with them anymore. You'd be crazy to forgive them again. No, no, keep forgiving, God says. Maybe it's this Mother's Day, you mums out there. It's your decision to keep pouring your life out into your children. To keep trusting God and loving and serving and sacrificing, even when it's hard. Because that's the kind of God that you serve. That's how he treats you. Maybe it's in the workplace. You go with the flow, look like everybody else. Maybe dishonest, maybe wasting time, maybe lazy, maybe one-upmanship and competition, the kind of things that go on in work. Or, or do, you, do you trust God? They would think you're crazy for not going along with them. You want to trust him, even though it's hard in the darkness. Maybe how you rest. Maybe how you steward the things that you have, the gifts that the children were learning about. Maybe your money, whatever it might be. Maybe your life ambitions. Do you trust him in the darkness, even though we don't quite understand? And it might be costly. Or us as a church. In the midst of change, uncertainty, confusion, not quite sure what's going to happen, not quite sure about buildings or staffing or plants or new churches and all that kind of stuff seems to me God says in the midst of it, just trust me and be faithful. Just keep going. I've revealed to you what faithfulness looks like, now just keep going. Keep doing it. Even in uncertainty, even in darkness, even if the world would think you're crazy, keep trusting. And so he ascends Mount Maria, the one who has faith in God and his life-giving promises, and he obeys him. And now, though, our attention turns away from Abraham onto the object of his faith, to the God of promise who provides. Pick up the story with me at verse 6. We're going to read a big chunk again. Verse 6 there, page 22. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac says, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. You can cut the tension with a knife. Well, inappropriate. You can feel the concern and the tension, can't you, as they are walking up the hill. Isaac looking around thinking, I think my dad's just had a senior moment. Hang on, Dad. Quick, quick inventory. You've got the fire. You've got the wood. Something fairly key that's missing here, Dad. You've left the lamb. What are we going to offer? Abraham in the darkness. Trust in God. Step by step by step. Trusting, trusting, trusting. They reach the place and they build the altar and they arrange the wood. And then he binds Isaac. And he lays him on the wood. And he lifts the knife. And at the crucial moment, verse 11, God speaks. And the knife cuts, but it's not human flesh. It's rope. Our God who provides, provides what is needed in the place of Isaac. He provides a substitute. There's a ram in the thicket. And pretty much the story then wraps up there. So we have to ask, what is going on? What is Genesis 22 about? We've seen already to some sense it's about Abraham. He's he's an example of active faith in a sovereign God who brings life. His obedience, in some senses, is woven into God's promises, his sovereign promises, such that God says in verse 16, then I swear by myself that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. So Abraham's obedience has been kind of woven into God's promises back in chapter 12 and 15 and 17. But there are some sort of unanswered questions as we reach 22 and think, what is going on? Is this just a question of Abraham passing this spiritual Krypton factor? Is that it? Why Abraham's son... Why the substitution? Why this place, this site? Great questions. We will start to answer them today, but you'll need to come again next week to hear some more. Because it seems to me it's very much a story that points forwards. Within the symphony of Scripture, this little substitution motif begins here and yet leaves us still asking questions. When we get to the end, then we see what it was about. This is a a motif that is longing for the crescendo, longing for the climax. Listen to this from um, an article in a magazine called The Briefing, which came out last month, very helpfully for me. Um, It was from a lady called Jean Williams, and she was talking about her, her wrestle with this passage. 
with chapter 22. What is going on here? What is this about? She says this. She said, this is no small family drama, this. No psychological tragedy, no theatre played out for the amusement of the gods. What was lying there was a boy, yes. A man's only son. His one hope for family. His one hope for future. But what lay on the altar that day was also the son of the promise the seed of a great nation, the hope of worldwide blessing, for from this boy would come a son, and from him a son, and from him a son, and yet more sons until the one and only son came into the world. God made visible, salvation clothed in flesh, hope in human form. What God asks of Abraham, he gives himself. Once again, a father offers up his only son, but this time there is no reprieve. There's no last-minute escape clause. The sky is unbroken by a voice. Instead, darkness gathers, and the full weight of a father's anger descends. A cross instead of an altar. Nails instead of a knife. A lamb instead of a ram. Blood thick on the ground. A voice whispering, Father, a life given so that others may live. She continues, three days later the father receives his son back from death and suddenly the story of Abraham and Isaac doesn't seem so strange, but inevitable. A line drawing for the future to fill in. Christ's death in our place brings us life. He takes the just punishment that we deserve from a God who cannot simply overlook sin. He takes the guilt that we all have on himself. He is our substitute. Listen to this from a book I was reading a little while ago. From a guy who's now a pastor but somebody who in his teenage years used to really struggle and suffer with guilt. Um, And he dreamt this. He says, I I dreamed I was in a room filled with index card-sized files. They were like the ones libraries used in the past. When I opened a file, I discovered that the cards described my thoughts and actions from my life. This room was a crude catalogue system of everything good and bad that I'd ever done. As I browsed the cards under the headings, friends I've betrayed, lies I've told, lustful thoughts, I was overwhelmed with guilt. Long-forgotten moments of wrongdoing were described in chilling detail. Each card was in my handwriting and signed with my signature. Sadly, my misdeeds woefully outnumbered my good deeds. The dream continues. Then Jesus entered the room. He took the cards and one by one began signing his name on them. His name covered mine and was written with his blood. Abraham and Isaac is a foreshadow of what is to come. A place where people's sins are finally dealt with, where the one substitution would happen 
that God provides for his people. Because in years to come, on Mount Moriah would come a temple built to worship God where sacrifices for sin would happen, where substitutions would happen. And years after that would come a man who would walk to the summit of this mountain to a place called Golgotha. His name is Jesus. In fact, he is the true man of God who obeys. As Abraham trusted in the darkness, as Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice, so Jesus would ascend the hill, carry his own cross, and walk to his death. Substitution. It seems to me substitution is what sets the Christian faith apart from any other faith. 